Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today, we're going to be joined by a scientist who has helped discover new ways to turn algae into fuel. Then, we're going to chat with a researcher who helped discover the world's oldest tattooing needle. And then, like we do every week, we're going to find connections between what these two people do. That's the plan, at least. The archaeologist and the chemical engineer, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on this program, we chat with two researchers from vastly different fields, and we ask them to tell us about a recent discovery they've made. And then we arrange an introduction, and we never know where these conversations are going to go. We've had some fun matchups on the program. A few weeks ago, there was a venomologist and a behavioral scientist. And a few months before that, there was the space geologist and the neuroscientist. And in one of our earliest shows, we paired up a polar biologist and a free press policy expert. Today, we're introducing an archaeologist and a chemical engineer. And if that doesn't already sound like a strange pairing, just consider what these guys study. Joining us on the line from Pullman, Washington, where he is a doctoral candidate at Washington State University, is Andrew Gilreath-Brown. Writing in the Journal of Archaeological Science, he and his colleagues recently announced the identification of a 2,000-year-old tattooing needle, one of the oldest such instruments ever discovered. Andrew, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And with us in studio, just down the road from the University of Utah, where he is an assistant professor of chemical engineering and metallurgical engineering, is Swomitra Mohanty. He and his team recently described their super fast method of turning algae into biocrude in the journal Chemical Engineering Science. Swomitra, thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. Let's start today by talking about tattoos. That's 50 Cent and the game on the track Hate It or Love It from the game's 2005 album, The Documentary. On the cover of that album, the game sits shirtless, showing off the first few tattoos of a collection of body art pieces that, in the years that followed, slowly took just about every inch on his body. What compels people to cover their bodies in ink? Well, whatever it is, it turns out to be a very old compulsion, as evidenced by the work of my first guest. Andrew Gilreath-Brown, you and your colleagues discovered a 2,000-year-old tattooing needle, but you discovered it in sort of a crazy place. It was in an old box of archaeological artifacts. Tell me about this box. These were materials that were actually excavated in, in 1972 in southeastern Utah, these materials have been used by lots of researchers and have continued to be curated here um, for over 40 years. I was essentially charged with another graduate student um, working for the museum to kind of recatalog and make these materials uh, more organized and more accessible to other researchers um, since it's such a good collection. As I was going through about box 62, there's about 64 museum boxes and materials, I ran across the artifacts. So can you describe what this tool looked like? It's very small. It's only about three and a half inches. And it's made out of a sumac uh, twig stem. And then it has a little bit of yucca uh, leaf wrapped around the base of the handle. And then two prickly pear cactus spines kind of protruding out of the end. So all kind of parallel. And you would have kind of held it like a pin. And when you saw this, you, you recognized it as, as a potential tattooing instrument. How did you know? What was the thing that clued you in? 
Well, when I first saw it, I thought I just thought it was a really interesting artifact, just something I had never seen before. Um, but as I pulled it out of the box, I noticed the black staining on the tip, and that's what really uh, initially caught my interest. And were you surprised that nobody had identified it as that before? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, it is a, a little surprising, but also a, a lot of the kind of uh, tattoo artifacts that have been discovered in the past too have usually kind of largely gone unnoticed or. In a lot of instances as well, other types of artifacts like awls that people would have used to like puncture leather also get misclassified as tattooing artifacts. But there's been quite a bit of recent work uh, done by Lars Krutak and Aaron Dieterwolf that really kind of explores this uh, concept of identification of these ancient tattoo artifacts. And did you happen to have a special interest in tattoo? Are you, are you inked up? I am. I have a pretty large uh, sleeve tattoo on my left arm. Uh, I call it my archaeological CV because it has everything to do with my research. So I've always been kind of interested in that. And luckily, uh, my uh, colleague, Aaron Dieterwolf, who's also a co-author on the paper, one of the kind of main tattoo archaeologists. So I was able to pretty immediately message him and ask him what, uh, his thoughts on the artifact as well. So you've dated this now to 2,000 years ago. How do you go about doing that? In this particular instance, we have some really good radiocarbon data. There's lots of layers in this uh, really small excavation that they did. And researchers have taken several radiocarbon dates throughout this kind of trash heap or what we call a midden. I kind of relied on 22 dates that have already been run for this uh, particular excavation. So it's really one of the most well-dated kind of contacts uh, probably within the Southwest. The whole thing kind of dates in between 1 to 200 A.D., And then to make sure that this thing was what you believed it to be, you and your colleagues, you you constructed a duplicate. How did you do that? We have greenhouses on on campus, so I was able to get some prickly pear cactus spines. And then we also have sumac because it pretty much grows about everywhere in North America and uh, and also yucca here. So I was able to, with materials from around my campus, really, I was able to construct several replicas and in, in order to do some experimental tattooing with those replicas. And you did that on some test skin, I gather, some pigskin, is that right? Yeah, yeah, on pigskin. And, and it worked? You were able to tattoo the pigskin? Yeah, and I was, able to, I was able to get a pretty solid line fairly quickly. So any interest in using this method on yourself? I, I gather people have probably asked you that before. Yeah, uh, I I would actually be interested in in going through the process myself. Uh, My colleague has done it with uh, bone tools and tattooed lines on himself, so I'd be kind of interested to do it with with the cactus spines as well. What does a discovery like this tell us, particularly because it's, it's so much older than we actually thought tattooing existed in North America, right? Like the oldest tattooing tools had been dated to about 900 years ago. This one has now been dated to about 2000 years ago. So what do we know from that? That's specifically for uh, for Western North America. Um, there are some older ones for Eastern, but it really opens up um, a lot of ideas of how people kind of manage uh, relationships, how they might have marked themselves for different social and spiritual statuses within the Southwest. And it's really only something that we've been able to speculate before. This really kind of occurred at a time where populations were really starting to grow. It's called the Neolithic demographic transition. People are starting to transition from hunter-gatherer to farmers. So you get 
really high population densities um, during that time. So it's kind of a way to manage those relationships. Does this serve as a missing link of sorts for this cultural practice of tattooing? Because we know that tattoos go back. We have Iceman remains that have tattoos on them from like 5,000 years ago. And up until this moment in research history, we thought that tattoos didn't really come along in North America until about 900 years ago. But now that we put that back, is it possible that tattooing started in one central location, I guess is what I'm asking, and moved as humans moved as opposed to kind of being rediscovered in North America a relatively short time ago? It's a little difficult to speculate. There is actually a tattooed mummy from Alaska that dates to about 200 to 400 AD. So, you know, it'd be pretty close to this time period. And then there's another set of uh, tattooing kit that um, even dates back to the archaic period within the southeastern United States. So we almost really don't have enough evidence to, to be able to speculate. That's Andrew Gilreath-Brown, whose recent study titled Redefining the Age of Tattooing in Western North America, a 2,000-year-old artifact from Utah, was recently published in the Journal of Archaeological Science Reports. Andrew, can you hang around a bit and listen in while I chat with my next guest? Yes, definitely. Okay. Let's talk about algae. That is the Biofuel song by the reggae band Live Broadcast. The song is a protest song with lyrics that decry evil men with wicked intentions who want to make biofuels out of food. Which, okay, sounds a little conspiratorial, but back in the mid-2000s, one World Bank report estimated that a rise in the use of plant-based biofuels may have driven a rise in global food prices of up to 75%, in particular because corn was often diverted to make ethanol, and reports like that help stoke research into other sources of biofuels that wouldn't interfere with food supply sources like algae. Swamitra Mohanty, algae has always seemed like it could potentially be a great source for biofuel since it's easy to grow and relatively straightforward to convert, but there have been some pretty big obstacles. Can you talk about what has thus far limited algae fuel development? The nice thing about algae, like, like you say, is you can grow it in places that don't compete with the food supply. The problem is the energy and resources we go to grow the algae do not translate to something's economical yet. So, for example, um, there's different kinds of bioreactors that people have utilized to try to improve the growth process of the algae. Then once you have the algae, you have to extract it and pull out the oil. That process ends up being very energy intensive. So depending on how you extract that oil, you can you consume a lot of energy because you have to do things like dewater the algae coming out. Then you have to either, if you dry it all the way, press it to get the oil out um, or use a solvent extraction process. There's a, there's a, a number of different ways. Then once you get the oil, you have to convert it into a fuel, usually a biodiesel or a jet fuel. And even how that process is done also adds to the um, cost. So when you start adding all this up, it turns out that Algae has been a tough sell economically, although it's been done and demonstrated. Because of these obstacles, a lot of people have turned away from researching the potential of algae as a biofuel. What kept you in the game? There is still some interest in using um, algae, and, and actually, I should be specific, we're talking about microalgae, right, versus, you know, the algae you might, like the kelp you might find in the ocean. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the microorganisms. So uh, this is work we started a few years ago. 
at the time, the Department of Energy was actually funding a lot of this research. So we were interested in getting some data to write some proposals and build an algae program. So we just um, stuck with it, uh, looking at different ways of this extraction piece. So once we started looking at it, we thought, you know, we think we can really make a difference. We went through the process. We built the mixers in the lab, and the results showed that there was this, uh, a reasonable decrease in energy just for the extraction piece to get the biocrude out. But it was something that we we knew that's important. Whether it's commercialized later will remain to be seen. But one thing that you know we hope people take away about the impingement mixer is that you can use it on other organisms and other processes. It's not just algae. It just happened to be that's what we were doing at the time. Let's talk about this mixer. To make the conversion faster, you needed to separate the lipids from, from the algae. Mm-hmm. So you came up with this new tool, this this jet mixer. Can you kind of describe it and talk about like how it works? Sure, sure. So impingement jet mixers have been around for uh, a while. They usually use it to make drugs, um, precipitate particles, things like that. What we wanted to do is just create this uh, mixer where you could take the algae from the reactor directly and then we have a solvent and we wanted to run it into this mixer where as the algae enter they get um, sheared and the oil comes out now as the oil comes out we have this solvent where the oil preferentially goes into the solvent out of the water and then that spits out the end of the reactor where you get basically what we call this biocrude. The oil in the solvent plus some of the cell debris, which then you can separate out. If you were to collect that and you put it in a centrifuge or something, you would have different layers of product that you then pull out of, here's my oil. We kind of took all that processing to a, a rapid process. So you could just do it really fast with less energy. When you look at the end product of this, after I'm sure a bunch of different testing and a different bunch of different processes, but you right. realize that you've really kind of circumnavigated a, some steps to make this process faster. What goes through your mind? As a researcher, we're just kind of looking at the math. I'm like, oh, it looks like this actually is doing something useful, right? It, it's it, when you think about like, you know, the impact of what it might do for uh, other, you know, industries, or even, you know, if I'm going to take the algae and make it into some sort of you know, transformational fuel source, it, it, we would try to get a broad perspective saying, oh, it could be used for this, but we have all these other problems we have to solve too. So <laughs> it's never just, uh, oh, we, we've solved this, now every, the world will be changed. It's, it's, we, we try to keep a very, very even-keeled uh, view of what we're doing. So what are, what are the next steps for you in this research? Well, um, we've had a lot of interest from a few people overseas that want to try it on other materials. Also, um, they want to integrate it in, um, say, small-scale algae production for communities. We've, so we've seen some of that. We're also looking at trying it with other organisms that might be more economical than algae. And then we're also looking at ways to separate the product out of the impingement jet mixer. So I told you you would get this mess of stuff that phase separates out. Now, that process takes a little energy too, so we have a few ideas on how to reduce the energy of that. So ideally, you would connect these pieces together and you have basically a product that is made for less money, which might lead to a, a more economical fuel precursor. Can we talk kind of broadly about the advantages of biofuels over traditional fuels? I think maybe that part gets skipped over sometimes because we make some assumptions, but what, what are the advantages? So the idea, one is, you know, to, of course, reduce the dependency on, on fossil fuels. If you take, say, a biodiesel that is produced, the, the emissions from a, a biodiesel combustion are um, lower than, say, traditional diesel. So you have less particulate matter. But I should point out that when we use biodiesel, it's actually a 20% biodiesel in 
regular diesel. Sometimes that's not known, but so it's still a blend. So it's still a partnership with with some of the fossil fuels. But a lot of times, you know, people uh, in their quest to get off fossil fuels, that's where renewables and things that you can grow are attractive. And algae fuels, they still emit carbon, but it's carbon that was recently taken out of the air, right? Right, right. So there's the whole idea about like uh, the carbon sink. So if it's a carbon neutral, so to speak, right? So you had to use carbon to create the algae, which then helped us to the, to create biofuels. So from a carbon footprint perspective, you can use that as an argument for why you might want to do this versus just burning um, straight fossil fuels. Do you find it a challenge to temper people's expectations? This is legitimately a significant step in the science, but there's a lot of steps in the science. Yeah, it, it, no, that's that's true. People, I, I've had questions like, "Great, so why can I put this in my car?" You know, and and which I I do appreciate because there's a lot of enthusiasm from uh, the community and especially the students that you know come into my lab or in my class. So I like the enthusiasm; it's great. And then I kind of said, "Okay, let's go through the math." This could be a problem you could solve. And let's think about the things you would need to address to solve this. So I like it because it motivates people. And then, you know, hopefully, you know, it adds up to a full solution over time. That's Swamitra Mohanty, who is part of the team whose recent study titled Algal Lipid Extraction Using Confined Impinging Jet Mixers was recently published in the journal Chemical Engineering Science X. Swamitra, you were listening into my conversation with my first guest. Can I introduce you guys? Yes. Swamitra Mohanty, this is archaeologist Andrew Gilreath-Brown. And Andrew, this is chemical engineer and metallurgical engineer Swamitra Mohanty. Nice to meet you. Both of you have made discoveries that have in some ways resurrected an area of research. Andrew, before you identified and dated this ancient tattooing tool, it was widely thought that tattoos didn't come around in North America until about 900 years ago. Swamitra, a lot of people had sort of written off algae as a workable biofuel. What is it like for you guys to be in the middle of a reimagining of things that might have been or might be to come? It's really interesting being on the kind of brink of a discovery that I never thought I kind of would be a part of, especially for you know the Southwest where this wasn't known before. It's really only been speculated, but there was really no way to know before how people might have marked themselves in terms of social, spiritual status. I think on my end, it's actually re- re- kind of revitalizing our research interests too. So we see, you know, wow, people really are interested in this again. We, we sit there thinking, okay, well, what other experiments can I do to kind of move this forward and really make a contribution that uh, benefits society from this from these biofuels? And also, we just noticed there's a lot of student interest pickup. So, you know, students will come to me and say, I want to work on this. I'm like, okay, well, I guess let's figure out a way for you to work on it. You know, I've noticed that because of that attention, at least it's actually in, in my lab pushing it out more, which I, I like. I like the topic. It's just sometimes when I have to go look for funding, it's not there. But if there's a lot of push for it, I'm actually pretty excited about, okay, let's try some new things. And I think it'll push us to innovate. That's, a, that's what I'm kind of hoping with this as well, is that, you know, this was found in a museum collection and that it's hopefully going to generate new research and get people to kind of reexamine their museum collections, too, for evidence. Swamitra, what did I miss? What did you want to ask him that I didn't get to? Sure. No, I, I find this topic quite interesting, especially since I always thought I would get a tattoo and then all my friends got tattoos. And I said, okay, well, I'm not going to get a tattoo now because all of you have tattoos. But you found this in central Utah. Which communities or, or cultures do you think that this tattoo, this tool was used in? And what was it used for? 
How pervasive are these tattoos in a particular community as far as you guys know? A lot of researchers in the Southwest believe that they're kind of the early people for the ancestral Pueblo. Most of the modern ancestral Pueblo people, with some exceptions, don't practice tattooing anymore. But there's a really interesting article that came out um, in 2013 that a Western ancestral Pueblo person was talking about that uh, their clan, their ancestors had at one point practiced warfare, uh, human sacrifice. And this was kind of a dark history. And these people were tattooed. But at some point, they stopped tattooing because they didn't want to be associated with that anymore. And so I think that's a really good insight into some of the different ways that we see designs in other cultures, as well as on the rock art and effigies that we see within the Southwest. Um, these different kind of simple lines, geometric designs, organized dotted patterns that they could be representing different types of social status, spiritual status. It's kind of hard to narrow it down, but I think I think at the very least, this research will help um, kind of spur on being able to look more at the iconographic aspects of those depictions. Andrew, you were listening in while I was chatting with Swomitro. Is there a question that you wanted me to ask or an observation you made, a connection? So I spent time in the in our Franceschi Microscopy Center analyzing the cactus vines, trying to figure out their taxons. And I had talked to a couple of students that actually have examined different types of algae and essentially which ones might have the greatest returns in terms of yield for potential fuel sources. And I was just kind of curious if you thought that if either different lipid sizes or different types of species would yield different results or, or they still be just as effective with this jet mixer compared to the other traditional methods. That's a very good question. So, yeah, there are a variety of microalgae that have different yields, and there's also things you can do in the growth conditions. So the answer is that, yes, if you, you could either genetically engineer an algae that actually produces more, change the culturing conditions that produce more oil, then, of course, optimize the jet mixer for extraction. It's all a matter of just deciding which organisms are better, and also maybe a consortium might be better, too. But that's definitely something that could be done to improve the output. So you talked a little bit about the possibility of using the same method to extract other um, types of organisms. Would that be things like bacteria, yeast, and those kinds of things? Yeah, bacteria, yeast, fungus, any oil that's really derived from a microorganism, you could use this on. And the reason you might want to do that is we, we used a, a phototropic organism that used needed light. But you could envision other organisms that maybe are heterotropic. Maybe you just feed waste sugar, things like that. And these things could you know, possibly be used in a, a more complex life cycle process where maybe you have a brewery that maybe has leftover organisms or has waste that you can take mm -hmm. some of that um, sugar and put it into a reactor to make biofuel, for example. A lot of times we will look at pottery remnants, you know, we take a small section, grind them up, and then do some different steps to be able to extract the liquids. Do you think this could be a potential tool that could be potentially helpful for doing that type of research? So, so in principle, yeah, you could do something like this. If you were interested in, say, a residue oil or residue that was in the uh, artifact, you could grind it up and have it go through this process. And essentially what would happen is if you ground the things into basically micro particles, maybe the 10 microns each, you'd have them go through this piece. And then 
if the residue was maybe oily, just to give you an example, you could use an organic to basically pull that oily residue out and put it in the organic phase. Then you basically boil off the organic and you, you're left with the residue of what you're looking for. So you, you could do that. The, the nice thing about this method is that it's, it's really meant for high throughput. So if you, had, if you had a lot of pieces you had to study, you could just do it really, really quickly to, to look at that. Andrew, a few months ago, we had a researcher on our program from your university who had analyzed the remnants in tobacco pipes and discovered in those pipes a species of tobacco that isn't very common anymore, but apparently was quite a bit more common way back when. It occurred to me that this search for potential biofuels doesn't necessarily just need to extend to the plants that are most ubiquitous with us today. It could also extend to the organisms that we might still have the ability to cultivate and grow, but might not be quite as common anymore. Yeah, you know, there are lots of even different types of like uh, corn that do really well in air conditions, these kind of old traditional varieties that have been recovered archaeologically and now are being inputted into places like Ethiopia to help offset kind of changing environmental conditions. It's pretty interesting, too, how, you know, people may have managed fuel resources in the past. And I'm always kind of curious of, you know, are there things in the past, other fuel resources that we haven't even thought about as well? That's always useful. I mean, I, whenever uh, I have my students work on something, we almost go back into a lit review. And without fail, like 40 years ago, we'll find, you know, someone actually looked at that in a different way and it saved us a lot of time, right? So I, I'm definitely a big proponent of going back and see, especially if you look at different communities and cultures, sometimes you will find a good nugget of something that, you know, we could probably use as a, as a fuel. And, and analyzing, you know, the kinds of, of waste from different cultures is actually a really good place for a chemical engineer to be because everyone, they have a different way of viewing their waste. Some use everything, some use nothing, or some are in between. And, and looking at that actually can um, be inspiring for us to say, oh, let me analyze this, this material and say, aha, we can probably find something that you could probably sell to somebody. Unfortunately, we are running short on time. Swamitra Mahante, thank you for joining us on Undisciplined. No, thank you. And Andrew Gilreath-Brown, thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at So Undisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.